we won't go there with them. We're here to gather around God's Word, and uh, there's this beautiful uh, Jewish saying which I, uh, Lou and I, Louise and I came across when we were watching a great movie called Bella. If you ever want to watch a great movie, it's called Bella. I encourage you to, to, to get that out, uh, watch it on Netflix or something like that. And, and the movie starts with this, this, uh, this Jewish saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him about your plans. <laughs> if you want to make God laugh... Tell them about your plans. Well, last week, we looked at Genesis 16 and the plan that Abraham and Sarah hatched to make God's long-awaited promise of a child come to pass. And so Abraham, as you remember, married Sarah's servant Hagar and they produced a son who they called Ishmael. And I'm sure after conspiring and, and, and colluding and, and working out this, this, this plan, that Abraham and Sarah would have been feeling pretty smug about themselves. They'd worked things out, and in their mind, God's promise had finally uh, been fulfilled in the birth of this little boy, Ishmael. But God laughs and decides to throw a spanner in the works. And in Genesis chapter 17, God visits Abraham again and explains that the promised child that was to be born was to be born not through Hagar, but through Sarah. And so in Genesis chapter 17 and verses 15 to 19, it says, Then God said to Abraham, Regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, you will name her Sarah, which means uh, uh, princess. And I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will richly uh, bless her. And she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. Then Abraham, now remember, Abraham is the father of faith. So this is how the father of faith responds to this idea that Sarah will become the mother of the child of promise. Then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought, and how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, may Ishmael live under your special blessing. In other words, God, what you've suggested is, is completely preposterous and it's not going to come to pass. You've got it wrong. Ishmael is the one. But God replied, no, Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac. Now, Isaac means the sound of laughter. So this is God having a sense of humor. Um, Abraham has laughed a cynical laugh of unbelief and God interjects and says, well, let me have the last laugh because the son that I've promised, his name is Isaac and that means the, the, the sound of laughter. And I will confirm my covenant with him and his, descendant, and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. You know, we all get things wrong at times, don't we? But this, as we learned last week, was a monumental misreading of God's plan, and we still suffer the consequences of, of, of that scheming and that planning that, that Sarah and Abraham had engaged in. Now, I can imagine after Abraham has had this new encounter with God, um, I'm trying to imagine going to Sarah and saying, Darling, 
You know that idea that we had or that you had about um, um, Ishmael being uh, 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 God's uh, promised child? Well, um, we got that wrong. And um, I just had another visit from God. This God that you haven't had an encounter yet with, but the God that keeps coming to me. Well, this God visited me again. And um, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're going to be a mum. <laughs> now, last week we suggested that, um, that Sarah was probably a little bit of a feisty lady. I said a little bit bossy and domineering. So I, I can just imagine the conversation that takes place when Abraham suggests to her that she is about to become a mother. And uh, I can imagine Sarah's response would have been, fell with a little bit of um, sarcasm. And I, I think she would have said, what are you talking about? You know, this, this God that keeps appearing to you um, over the last 25 years, I've never met this God. I'm just starting to wonder whether this God of yours is a figment of your imagination or is it possible that you're turning senile? You're ageing and, and, and you're losing it. And I can imagine things around their tent or their house would have been a little bit kind of, 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 of tense there for a period of time. Not long afterwards, God shows up again. And in Genesis 18, it says, One day, Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day, and the Lord appeared again to Abraham. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. And when he saw them... He ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. Now, uh, these three men um, are either uh, um, representations of God or they are representatives of God. I would suggest that this is an incarnation of God some, somehow or some shape or form. Now, Abraham assumes that these three visitors um, have come to see him. But actually, they haven't come for Abraham. What they have done is they have come for his wife, Sarah. And Sarah's relationship with God up until this point has been through Abraham. For 25 long years, it's been Abraham who's informed Sarah of what God has said and what God has going to do. He's been like a priest for her. He's been an intermediary. But the reality is we can't get by... Um, on second-hand faith or what, what is known as the socialized faith, particularly when there is a crisis. A second-hand faith is living in the shadow of someone else's um, relationship with or experience of God. So often you'll have kids, children, who live in the shadow of their children's faith. Or there is one spouse who has a dynamic relationship with God and the other partner kind of sits in their slipstream a little and doesn't really have a personal relationship with God themselves. They kind of sit under their shadow. And their faith is, or their relationship with God is through another person. A socialized faith is when someone has learned all of the external language and the customs of Christian culture. But those things aren't actually internally embedded. And it's like having a form of, of faith without any substance to it. And so what you see is um, many, uh, many children who go to church, 
teenagers, they go to church, they're raised in a Christian home, um, and they go to a Christian school. They're very Christianized, okay? But what happens, they are at risk of having a socialized faith. They know all the language, they know all of the cultural trappings, but it hasn't become part and parcel of who they are. And the reality is, every one of us needs to develop our own connection with God. You cannot sit in the shadow of your wife. Guys, and man, cultivate your own connection with God. And wives, you can't sit under the, you can't sit under the shadow of my great faith, darling. Sorry about this. You've got to develop and cultivate your own relationship with God. What's taking place here is, is God is wanting to shift Sarah's faith from a second-hand kind of faith or a socialized faith into something that's rich and meaningful for her. And we all need to have that experience with God. And so the story continues. Where is Sarah, your wife? The visitors asked. She's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, and I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. She was eavesdropping in on the conversation. And Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? So after all these years, Sarah finally gets to hear from God herself. And like Abraham, all she can muster is a cynical laugh of unbelief. It's, this idea of them having children is, is completely preposterous. And I don't think we should be too hard on, on Sarah or on Abraham. We've got to put this story into perspective. I'm just wondering, who is the oldest couple in the room? The oldest couple in the room. Is it Royce, Royce and Lola? How, how, old, how old are you? 90 and... Not, so a couple in their 90s. Fred and Alison, how old are you? Oh, you're, you're spring chickens. <laughs> Who else have we got? Is anybody close to 90, a couple in their 90s? Anybody surpass that? Okay, so here are our oldest couple. Royce and Lola, how would you feel if God came to you one day? <laughs> would that excite you? Would you, would you, Lola, if Royce came to you and said, Lola, I believe God has spoken to me. Where to have a child? What would you think of that? Would you be happy? Well, you'd, you'd laugh, wouldn't you? You'd find that. So the idea of 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old Sarah uh, conceiving a child is, is a little far-fetched. It's outside of, uh, outside of the norm. I did a little bit of research. That means I went on Google. And I, did a, I discovered that the oldest couple to have a child with the help of IVF were a 72-year-old woman and her 79-year-old husband. 
So there's still, still opportunity for some of you out there. The oldest couple to bear a child by purely natural means, so no, no medical um, uh, support, were a 57-year-old uh, lady called Anna Martin and her husband, who happens to be called Ray, Ray Martin, which I thought was funny. He was 55, so, so Louise, there's actually, still <laughs> there's actually still hope for us. Aren't you excited by that thought? You can understand why there's a little bit of cynicism there. But actually, Sarah is not cynical because the idea of having a baby at their age is too outlandish. There's actually something deeper going on in Sarah. She's cynical because she's a wounded woman. And God has actually come to visit her, to heal her. She's hurt. And God has come to her rescue. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12, Sarah says, How could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure? And that, that phrase there in the Hebrew language, worn out, it literally means a, a garment that is, that is useless and good for nothing. It, it means a garment that should be just taken and thrown away. And so Sarah feels like she's discarded and worthless. Her self-perception is, is, is really, really damaged. And the question is, why, what has brought her to this place? What makes this woman feel like she is no good? that her life is in tatters. And it's so important that we transport ourselves back in time into, into Sarah's world and to know something of Sarah's experience. You see, children in the ancient world were the, were the basis of a woman's value and worth. It was how they gained their identity. Infertility was a source of deep personal and social shame. So a, 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 a bride's status as wife depended upon whether or not she bore children. In fact, a marriage wasn't considered complete until childbirth. Now, if a man was, to, uh, marry, uh, was married to an infertile wife, he had the legal right, was part of the, the marriage contract, um, that he could take another wife so he could have children by her. That was why it was quite acceptable for Abraham to marry Hagar and for them to have a child. This was the world in which Sarah lived in. Now, even if, if a woman did become pregnant and gave birth, if there were any difficulties during, during childbirth or the child was born with some form of disability... It was believed that that was caused by the woman's sin. This is the way, this, this was the ancient world. And so the blame for a childless marriage always fell on the wife. There's uh, the story of a Middle Eastern king um, called um, Kurtu. And he married seven times in an attempt uh, to produce an heir. And each time he failed. 
But each time, the responsibility for the inability to conceive was, the blame for that was placed on each of the seven women. And, and it was unthinkable that a male, never mind a king, could possibly be the barren one. Read your Bibles, you will not find a barren man in your Bible. That's the context in which Sarah lived. This is the world in which we live. And there was nothing that could compensate for her infertility. She um, could be beautiful, and she was a beautiful woman, actually, if you read, um, read about Sarah. She was also a great housewife. Well, she could have been a great housewife and the best cook in town. But in the light of her barrenness, it was never going to be good enough because there was this stigma attached to her infertility. And so Sarah lived with this social shame and this personal disappointment of barrenness. And she experienced social rejection. She experienced self-rejection and also the rejection of her husband. It's interesting, it says, Sarah says, how could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure? And that word pleasure is the word, is a, in the Hebrew, means sexual pleasure. And Sarah says she's in a marriage that, that's lacking intimacy. Abraham probably hasn't touched her in, in years. She's unloved and she's unwanted. And, and this sense of... of um, of lovelessness and worthlessness is compounded by the fact that Abraham has now married another woman and that woman is Hagar, is Hagar, Sarah's servant, and she walks around the house with a baby who's now become a young boy. And Sarah is a deeply wounded woman. And so when God comes to Sarah and, and says to her about this promise, She's not only writing off um, the possibility of having a child because of her age, she is not emotionally or psychologically able to believe because she is broken and overwhelmed by shame. And this is, this is where God steps in to the picture. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Again, the, the Hebrew language is, is really quite beautiful. And this little phrase, too hard, um, it means wonder or marvel. And Sarah... Sarah's life is lacking wonder. It's like the colour has drained out of, out of her world. Now, wonder is, is the wow factor. You know, if you take a four-year-old to the zoo, what do they do? They see a giraffe. Wow. They see a zebra. Wow. They see a lion. Wow. You take a 14-year-old to the zoo, I'm bored. <laughs> you know, what's happened the wonder is gone. You know, the older we get, the more the wonder can wear off. The marvel of life, of just being. 
We stop being wowed. We become jaded and lose a sense of mystery. And, and Tim Keller says we live in a wonder-killing world. We live in a wonder-killing world. So, you know, you, you fall in love or you see something beautiful. Well, you know, well, that's just the result of chemical reactions and evolutionary biology. All of the mystery is kind of gone, is sucked out of, out of life. And G.K. Chesterton says, we have to wonder. We're inbuilt. There is something within us that needs um, to experience transcendence or, or, or marvel. And, 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 and G.K. Chesterton says, we have to wonder, so we steal it through art. So that's why people just go to the movies or listen to music um, or, or uh, appreciate a fine piece of art because at least it gives us a momentary point of restoring wonder to our lives. And what, or how does God respond to Sarah's cynicism, her unbelief and a lack of wonder? Is God going to compound her rejection, that rejection she already f- feels about herself, the rejection that she feels from her husband and the social rejection, is God going to come and compound her rejection because she's cynical? Is that how God works? Well, when we jump forward to chapter 21, we actually see what God does for this worn-out woman. It says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. Now the, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised. That line there is so incredibly important. The Lord was gracious to Sarah. You see, the Lord did not compound her rejection because she was cynical. God was kind and compassionate and gracious towards this wounded, wounded woman. And grace changes everything. It's grace that restores intimacy back into her loveless marriage. It's grace that restores wonder back into her dull life. It's grace that brings the promise of God to pass. It's grace that stimulates her faith. And it's grace that removes her shame and her failure. And for me, this is the point of of the Abraham-Sarah story is... Sarah is not a woman of great faith. She's actually struggling to believe. Abraham struggles to believe. But Sarah struggles to believe because she's heartbroken. God has come for lunch and all that Sarah can do is laugh cynically. Yet despite her cynicism, God encourages her with a seed of hope, a spark of possibility actually enters into the frame and it produces within Sarah the the tiniest of spark. Jesus talks about faith the size of a mustard seed. I've got some mustard seeds there. They're they're tiny. You know, we think we have to have great faith. You won't be able to see that probably. (laughs) It's, it's, It's tiny. 
That's all that. That's all. What, do, what does God want out of you? I've lost it. It's there somewhere. The whole point of the Abraham Sarah story for me is God doesn't require much from us. God's not looking for too much for us. If we can muster a mustard seed size faith, muster a mustard seed size of faith, that's all God has got, that's all that God is looking for. See, I grew up in a church culture that placed the emphasis of faith on me. You know, God's action in my life was reliant, was determined almost exclusively on how big and how well I could believe. And it was a completely human-centered approach to the life of faith. But the story of Abraham, the father of faith, and the story of Sarah, the mother of faith, teaches us that it's actually God's faithfulness that it sits at the heart of faith. So in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11, it says, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she considered him faithful. She considered him to be faithful who made the promise. The life of faith is a partnership in which God provides the promise, we muster a mustard seed-sized faith response to that. We say yes and amen. And God follows through with faithfulness. To me, that's what the life of faith entails. God provides the promise. We muster up a mustard seed-sized faith. We find a spark. We kind of go... Okay, and then God follows through with faithfulness. I am so glad that God is not limited by the size of my faith. I'm so relieved. I am so relieved that it doesn't rely upon my size of faith. What matters is being able to come to a place of trust in God's faithfulness or a place of rest in God's faithfulness. It's great is your faithfulness, not great is my faith. Does that make sense? It's great, great is thy faithfulness, not great, or how great is my faith. And so this morning, I want to ask you, um, what are you laughing cynically at at this moment in your life? What seems to be the impossible situation for you? What is it that is, is beyond your capacity? Because I want to tell you this morning, God is faithful. Great is God's faithfulness. And if you can just allow God's graciousness to come and rekindle something of a spark within you. Just produce within you a tiny, tiny mustard seed size of faith. Things can change.
I want to say this morning, it's great as His faithfulness. Put your trust this morning in God's faithfulness. Don't put the focus on your faith. Center your attention on the faithfulness of God this morning. There are some worn out women in this place this morning and not just females there's worn out men and women in this place you just feel worthless you feel like you failed you feel like you've messed up you feel like it's all too hard you feel like cast aside I want to say to you this morning God's come knocking on your door and you might have laughed cynically but God will not cast you aside I just want you to reorientate yourself this morning around the faithfulness of God reorient yourself around the character of God this morning and allow that to stir within you a spark of hope for your future to be different to what it is right now. Let's pray. Loving God, we come and we we thank you for the example of Abraham and Sarah. And Lord, we too have laughed that cynical laugh. Lord, we too have, have doubted you. And I thank you that you don't condemn us. But Lord, you would remind us this morning of your faithfulness. You would remind us this morning of your character. And we remind ourselves today of how good, how kind, how gracious you are. And Lord, may that rekindle within us that spark, that seed. would bring about change in our life. Lord, we pray for the birthing of Isaacs in our lives this morning. Lord, that there would be no longer the laugh of cynicism, but Lord, the sound of authentic joy because of what you bring to pass, we pray in Jesus' precious name. in a situation this morning where you're feeling a little worn out and um, we'll close the service but we'll provide an opportunity um, for you if you need prayer there'll be folks that will be willing to pray for you this morning and stand with you and pray for a rekindling of the spark if you're someone who feels like your faith has been a second hand faith or a socialised faith and you need to Make a shift and a change in terms of um, your connectedness to God and want to be able to, your, your faith to be grounded in something that's meaningful and personal for you. I invite you to come and, and we will pray with you and, and help you make that transition this morning. So God bless you. Enjoy your day. 
go in peace. And may the God of promise prove to be faithful in your life. Amen. Amen. God bless you.